Welcome to the Mandalorian podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial podcast for the Outer Rim. My name is Matt, and joining me in the co-pilot seat is Pete. Hello, the Pete. What is up, all my Mandos and Mandats? The Mandalorian podcast by Fantastic Geek dons our helmets for Chapter 9, The Marshal. Pete, this podcast episode scheduled to hit the the hollow airwaves on our Mando Monday. Pete, that's our guarantee, although the suspicion being many a Sunday it'll be hitting podcast feeds. So looking forward to having the scheduling to deal with Star Trek Discovery, big, giant, thoughtful episodes to deal with this second season of Mandalorian. If this episode is any indication, big, giant uh, episodes much more theory filled and crisscrossy and things like that and just really looking forward to where we are at for fantastic geek right now just dropped a uh an extra for patrons on our patreon page patreon.com slash fantastic geek that you want to check out and we uh checked out the borat uh, subsequent movie film you can find that on our pop culture podcast so lots going on here around fantastic geek headquarters uh the least of which is mandolin with that it's time to hit the hunt the mandalorian and the child stride down a dusty street at dusk in an urban landscape littered with graffiti, red eyes that are definitely not off-world Jawas looking on. There's your anti-stormtrooper graffiti. Uh, there's even a, a yellow droid graffiti. Um, interesting there. Uh, they arrive at a Twi'lek bouncer who the Mandalorian tells he is there to see Gore Koresh. He looks them over before telling them to enjoy the fights. And they enter to the sound of discordant music and the sights of flags above an octagonal ring in which two Gamorrean guards, a little more svelte than we've seen them in the past, are battling with big vibro axes before cheering spectators. Fight night. Ding, ding, to reference another fight thing starring Carl Weathers. Uh, love the appearance of the... Pete, you say Gamorrean, I say Gamorrean. A a am I committing a Star Wars faux pas? Is there... Uh, potato, top... potato. Oh, good. Because especially with Star Wars, you know, I know that we have we have the canonical hierarchy, so I don't, I don't want to be wrong. Don't want to say hashtag not George's Wars with a Z. Uh, love the axe battle. Only minor critique about it is that it seems, for dramatic purposes, the axe battle largely consists of uh, I parry and you block. Now you parry and I block. But I get it. I understand why. Uh, Pete, we meet the one-eyed willy monster, Gore Koresh himself. He of the uh, race that we've seen before. It's not Abyssinian, but tell me, Pete, what of what race is Gore Koresh? That I didn't bother to to look up. I I know he's just a one-eyed alien. We've seen him in the cantina before, not uh, Koresh explicitly, but but this this uh, species. Um, Abyssin, A, 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 a B Y S S I N. Uh, I, I went on a deep dive on Wikipedia. 
uh, it, it's Pete between that and on our Star Trek Discovery podcast, me learning about all these Star Trek, uh, pardon me, the Starfleet general orders and whatnot. It's just, it's a great time to be a geek. Um, Gore Koresh offers a wager, the outcome of the fight, uh, deciding whether he shares information on where uh, more Mandalorians can be found uh, versus uh, our Mando losing his Beskar armor. Uh, the irony being that uh, as our Mandalorian uh, wonders if that's not even wonders as he declines to uh, to wager such a thing, Gore Koresh uh, handles the outcome of the fight by saying, hey, my guy isn't going to last. Boom, shooting his fighter dead. Pete, that's how you know he does not value life. Yes, uh, not leaving it up to fate there. The same as the Mandalorian wouldn't, but there's a very clear difference in their ethics. Um, with that, we get the Mandalorian uh, drawn down on by uh, Gore Koresh's retinue. And then uh, we're going to uh, activate the whistling birds here. The child sees them. He closes his little pram up, something that had been out there before. Um, and then the Mandalorian uh, fires the whistling birds. He kicks the pram away. The Gamorrean jumps out of the ring and lands on a bench. Uh, there's hand-to-hand fighting. There's hand-to-weapon fighting before finally uh, Mando uses a vibro dagger on the last two, all while the slightly rotund Gore Koresh runs away and out into the street. Yeah, just a, a very, very solid fight there. Part of me kind of wished maybe it was a little bit more fight choreography or a little bit more kind of, you know, kind of Matrix-style kind of fetishization of the fight. But I think that uh, I think that probably pacing wins out. I will point out, Pete, uh, I, I did wonder why Mando didn't retrieve his Vibra blade from the uh, the downed baddie there. But I know something about that blade and that downed baddie. Uh, he doesn't spill a drop of blood. Uh, that's probably an alien thing or hashtag all Disney, no blood. Um, ultimately, though, when the Mandalorian catches up with Gore Koresh, he strings him up hanging him from a light pole, uh, promises that Gore won't die by his hand, and is ultimately given uh, the news that there is a Mandalorian on Tatooine. What? Pete, first season, so retained with crossovers, with things of that sort. Now we are immediately jumping on back to Tatooine from you know last season and some other stories. Uh, but that's not quite yet the end of Gore Koresh. Yeah, that the Mandalorian is in the city of Mos Pelgo. Given the information there, uh, the Mandalorian vows that he will not kill uh, Gore Koresh, but he leaves him up. He shoots the light and those red eyes uh, gain ground ever so slightly to the screaming of Gore Koresh as we head into the title card for chapter nine the marshal Chekhov's red eye alien rat things what are too scary to see in the light and whatnot uh after the title sequence we have the uh the joyous 
uh, uh, lingering shots that show the Mandalorian's return to Tatooine. We're talking just the 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 dusty, rocky canyons. We got some Bantha there. Ultimately, he is landing in Peli Mato's repair bay. Pete, I believe that's repair bay 35. Um, he comes out. She remembers him. Uh, he gives the update. Droids are cool now. Go ahead and update. Uh, not update, but give the Razor Crest a, a, crest a once over, which if nothing else is perhaps some handy story work there to just make sure that the ship isn't uh, in terrible shape because Pete, I haven't seen the previews. I expect the Razor Crest <laughs> will be a okay all season long. Absolutely, he likes droids now. And thank the Force, Matt, the little womp rat, not the little womp rats we see throughout the rest of this episode, but we're referring to a certain the child uh, is there in a satchel. Uh, maybe he even remembers Pelimato. How much does Mando want for it? Just kidding, but not really. And if he ever divides or buds, she'd gladly pay for its offspring. Now, Pete, I had wondered in retrospect if that was a slight loving nod towards uh, towards Gremlins. You know, the Gremlins, the, the movie franchise where that's how they reproduce. I mean, just something in the larger Spielberg, Frenzo, Spielberg, Lucas, <laughs> ILM, you know, makeup puppet kind of world. We don't know that if you feed a member of Yoda and the child species after midnight that they don't turn into uh, Bib Fortuna. So who knows? Uh, have to mention, Pete, that it's at this point that Pelimato. Uh, wants to show the map on hologram and calls out none other than R5D4. That's right, the faulty uh, R uh, astromech unit. Yeah, the the one that would have gone to Uncle Owen's uh, Uncle Owen's farm if not for that bad motivator. So, which I to seem see. to remember we saw in Tatooine in season one. I think in the cantina. Um. I would agree that that's my that's my uh, memory as well. So, uh, Pete, there are larger story arcs in this episode. There are larger um, uh, fan service things or fan theories or you know what has happened in the in between years. But there's just something nice to know that Red keeps chugging along. You know he's kind of. I know Star Wars. Star Wars lives in this world where we love droids as sentient, but we don't treat them as such. We, the audience, we, the characters. Uh, and here, Red is still getting barked at all these years later. Hurry up! Why are you so poorly made? Get the hollow thing up. It's just it. it Pete, it's nice that we can we can kick around one more, you know, one last uh, garbage can in this world where where hopefully we're all better behaved. But here's the map before the war. Here's your Moss Isley. Here's your Moss Espa. And up way in this region is Moss Pelgo. Don't see anything well. It's there, or at least it used to be. An old mining settlement. Can't take this big hunk of metal, though. They'll see you before you land. So story reasons to borrow that old rusty speeder bike. And Mando hits the dunes with the child in a bag on the back great shot uh probably the second best child action of the episode uh with the ears flopping there in the breeze 
and Mando spends a night at a Tuscan campfire doing the old sign language before the next day he passes a bantha skeleton and some womp rats till he arrives at moisture evaporators and a tiny one street town out in the open. Obviously the first season leaned into the Western aesthetic, Western cowboy aesthetic, you know, also kind of the sci-fi influence, the samurai influence, you know, all of that kind of the star Wars, uh, part of the star Wars ingredients here. I mean, as he pulls in, it's as old Western as you can get. He's going down the center of the one street. There's people kind of looking, kind of shading their eyes at him, some kind of heading indoors. It's, it's just, it's just Western through and through. Um, he ends up pulling up his uh, speeder bike to uh, what ultimately is the bar. Uh, only thing missing, Pete, would have been a hitching rail. Uh, of course, not necessary <laughs> due to the lack of, you know, a horse. Um, talking to that bartender, uh, ultimately, Mando is there looking for armor like his. Uh, you want a Mandalorian? What do Mandalorians look like? They look like me. Sounds like the Marshal. Oh, look, you can ask him yourself. I mean, again, this is western movie 101 but it's so welcome through the through the lens through the through the filter of star wars of sci-fi etc and then boom you do the double take in the doorway of the shot of is that boba fett armor is this boba fett is he the marshal but this gunslinger vibe with the noticeably different red scarf underneath. We've got the spur sounds of him striding in. And then uh, Cobb Vanth, we see in subtitles before we get the name, asks the stranger what brings him there. So we know it's not Boba Fett underneath. Boba Fett, Boba Fett. I guess no Boba Fett in this episode, tier, tier. Uh, we have... We have the the air of confrontation, though Cobb Vanth pours uh, or orders rather two snorts of spotchka. Uh, Pete, obviously the spotchka, the reference understood from last season. Uh, I don't know if two snorts. Uh, I don't know if two snorts is an is an old timey reference or if that's something that's been thought up on the spot or whatever. No, but no, a snort again, is a is like a shot. Okay, there you go. See, we're learning things. Um, there's the as they sit down, or rather, as Cobb Vanth sits down and Mando continues to stand. Um, there really is the feeling, you know, two men enter, only one is going to walk out. They get ready to do the dance of death right there, you know, the old the old showdown who can draw first. But Pete, with that, the ground rattles as we start to head into some of the most frightening stuff ever produced in Star Wars little guy over by the pot there having wandered in making Vanth think that maybe Mando isn't as good at killing as all those other Mandalorians he's heard about but yes you're right the the rattling the the clattering and out into the street as the alarm blares with the child getting low by the pot uh thank god it's not a spittoon Matt because I'm just not ready to see the, the child covered in muck, at least not that muck. Uh, Vanth puts the, the finger up at the moment of highest tension, heads outside. Mando joins him in the doorway. We see the street. 
the windmill starts to blow, the womp rats, the bantha, uh, people run inside, and then the sand is disturbed, and we hear it, we recognize it before we know what it is, this crate dragon call, and down the street come the fins disturbing the sand here. There's a bantha, there's a pause, there's jaws. Hey, maybe we can work something out. Yeah, I mean, the full-on character design, the whole, the, the whole spirit of it. I mean, Favreau is, just as Star Wars has riffed on the things that have come before it, as mentioned before, samurai, western, sci-fi, you know, here, Favreau uh, lovingly borrowing from Spielberg, from Jaws, uh, the character design we see some of here and certainly later on. I mean, this thing is a great white shark, dragon, of the sand, but starting point being a great white shark, uh, terrifying indeed. Uh, and then as you mentioned, Pete, this, this in that very Western aesthetic, this is the excuse for the two men to turn aside what was about to be a fatal showdown. Hey, uh, let's work together instead. Uh, they do. And before too long, Pete, we see that uh, Vanth is, uh, has taken, or someone has taken a pod racing engine, wielded, a speeder bike seat on it to that pete i say now this is pod racing <laughs> some discussion whether it is actually anakin's or not and we'll really examine that later when we talk theories gotta point out the the child i i love that you know we we never see him directly because of the puppet because of the cgi model you know, only shown whatever we need to be shown. And we don't see him climb into the pot, but we see that he's in the pot and now looks out from it before this scene that you're talking about. Um, but on the, the ride here, uh, revealed that they have been terrorized by this, um, this monster uh, long before the town was established. That the armor is something that's enabled um, Vanth to protect the town from bandits, from sand people, Matt, that derogatory term. Um, and that they're looking to him for protection from the crate dragon. Okay. So the, the bargain, the first bargain is, is made. That is to say, you help me kill the crate dragon. I will help you. Uh, um, I will give you this armor here. They strike that deal. And, um, you know, first Mando wants to just go back to his ship and blow it away from the sky using the Bantha as bait, but you can't do that. So again, story reasons, it'll sense the vibration, it'll stay underground, but he knows where it lives. So on to those speeders and little bit of story baloney here that you can talk over these massive pod race engines. <laughs> yeah. And, and not just like, not just like the, you know, faux acting yelling, you know, let me tell you a story. It's just full on. Like, so let me tell you there <laughs> things were all normal and the empire had just ended occupation over, you know, but we get, we get that explanation. Interesting that obviously Star Wars has spent so much time on Tatooine. It's interesting to pick up 
yeah, I don't know what the time delay was for for uh, the real news Hollandettes to be reporting about the the destruction of the Death Star, the second one. Um, but I mean, we you know, know one from sense is the revised end of Return of the Jedi that there was partying in Mos Eisley. So conceivably, that quickly it traveled to Mos Pelgro. I it, conceivably remember they're in different systems. So to think that it's night on Tatooine, it was night on Endor, that it's the same night again, you know, within the realm of believability. Uh, but power hates that vacuum, Matt. Yes. And I just like the idea that if you factor out, you know, like it could possibly be night in all these places, just this idea that. It's the end of Return of the Jedi, and then we see the celebration in Mos Pelga. It, it's it's the the credits have barely started in 1983. We're walking out of the theater. Meanwhile, in Mos Pelga, um, we have the Mining Collective coming in in their distinctive Mining Collective gear, um, just shooting people. It's now a you know a reoccupied town, Vanth. Uh, escaping with the bartender, uh, ultimately uh, escaping. You know, he split up with the bartender, but then takes a cam. Tono uh, didn't know that there was silicax crystals in there. Wanders for days, ultimately picked up by a nay the sand crawler, uh, where where the the Jawas have rescued him, bring him back to to you know a metaphorical life. He obviously was not literally dead. Give him the water skin. He trades this those silicax crystals in for mm, that suit over there. So, Pete, what, what was amazing was to watch this episode with my wife and daughter. My daughter certainly was not going to be making any Boba Fett connection um, unaided through myself or through the narrative. My wife, I thought she might. You know, she she knew enough where I was like, "Hey, that's the red." robot that blew up and then he got r2 and she's like oh yeah i know exactly what you mean but wasn't quite picking up on this is where boba fett left off in an unsatisfactory ending in return of the jedi because when the toy and then the anticipation and then the bubba none of that kind of came through but it just works as i want that suit of armor so i can go help people with the silicax crystals he gets the suit of armor the water skin and his freedom to go back to moss pelgo Yes, the street, the shadow of the armor enters the cantina there and the mining collective is still hanging out along with that poor Weequay bartender. He got out, but somehow got rounded back up. Uh, he motions him to leave, Vance does, and then he takes out a bunch of mining collective. He takes the hit off the Beskar armor. No worse for wear slowly walks outside as in subtitles that are identified as agents pile into the speeder and away lowers the old range finder and uh, rockets them with the new replacement rocket that he has another one on the pack later on flashback over. Now, Pete, that's the kind of rocket that doesn't need to be, uh glued into the pack <laughs> for fear of choke hazards yes, okay there was a big fear in moss pelgo that people might choke on vance rocket 
and, and Pete, though there might be one subtext to what you're saying, uh, I, I trust most listeners, but perhaps not all, know that with the original Boba yes. Fett toy, there was the promise of the rocket that can fire, and then there was the fear uh, that it was uh, <laughs> it was the proper size and shape to be a choking hazard. So I think first they were going to add some kind of venting things, and then the, ultimately the solution was uh, what? To just make the entire backpack thing where the rocket was a part of it and it was not was not separatable it was just one hunk of plastic is that all correct that's completely correct and meanwhile in pete's inner sanctum uh there may or may not be uh a a prototype version of the boba fett one that does uh <laughs> no, no that prototype does shoot the but they later put out a a version uh, retro style where the rocket does indeed fire oh, because oh. toys in the hands of adults in the late seventies, early eighties, not so much, unless of course you're trying to retrieve a rocket part from a child's gullet. Uh, and, and now, you know, yeah, <laughs> just Pete, I just ask that you play carefully because yes. you might shoot your eye out. I I will do my best. The speeders streak on into canyons. Vanth raises a hand. They both jump off their speeders. They pull their guns. There are distant growls. But we are anticipating the crate Dragon. Instead, Matt, these are Massifs. These are the lizard-like dog creatures. There are six of them suddenly. And uh, Mando shouts in Tuscan, what the heck are you doing? I'm editorializing there. He walks out. He speaks in grunts, pets them. And then three Tuscans walk out. Mando does hands and grunt talk. Hey, partner, want to tell me what's going on? They want to kill the Krayt Dragon, too. Uh, look at that, Pete. The sand dogs, or I guess they have a name, because of course they have a name. I'm somewhat surprised, but I shouldn't be surprised to see on uh, Wikipedia that they go all the way back to Attack of the Clones. So, yes. um, yeah. Um, Pete, that's your Dave Filoni influence right there. Also appeared in one, two, three, four, five, six episodes of Clone Wars. Uh, but I digress in my little geek tangent there. We cut to the Tuscan camp at night. Uh, a bantha is getting its teeth brushed. Pete, much um, earnest, and I'm not making a joke here, much earnest reflection on the state of medical care in <laughs> the Republic and how, you know, if Padme was only receiving proper OBGYN care, there wouldn't have been all these issues, hidden pregnancy, dies during childbirth, etc. Maybe a broken we're trying... heart, Matt, died of a broken heart. In yeah, uh, Pete, Pete, that's when a 50-year-old dude writes a script with no female input um, and, and having... Uh, divorced his be one of his best uh star wars 1977 collaborators in uh marshall Lu uh, lucas uh, but i digress here we see at least some better uh health care albeit in a veterinary sense the bantha getting its teeth brushed more plans are being made amongst our uh amongst our two-legged uh characters here um cobb is bid to drink the stink bomb drink but he won't uh that dusts off Re reinvigorates the friction between uh between tuscan raiders and the pete i don't want to say human and human adjacent folks but what you know amongst the other humanoids i guess that's the, the way to put it mando just trying to keep them 
uh, working together. Pete, another show might now tell us the importance of having a dialogue, talking through your differences. But this being that kind of sci-fi Western, it's just, come on, knuckleheads, let's work together. Yeah. Uh, Mando says that the Tuscan says that Vance people steal their water. And now he insults them by not drinking it. Uh, but they know about Moss Pelgo. They know how many sand people he's killed. Uh, Vanth counters that they've raided his village. He's defended the town. But lower your voice. No, tosses the drink. He's agitating them. These monsters, Matt, they can't be reasoned with. Okay. But you know what solves everything and gets everybody to cool down, ironically, is your flamethrower. Okay. Quick shot of the child between Mando's feet. And then in some more grunty talk, uh, is able to tell Vanth that they can fight amongst themselves and the monster will kill them all. Okay. And then Mando asks the Tuscan Raiders, how do they kill it? Uh, the next day they're taking Banthas to the dragon lair for sure. You know, I thought we would, I initially thought we were getting the dragon lair a bit sooner, but now we're going to get it for sure from the Ridge. Uh, all involved watch as a sacrificial Bantha is led near the opening of a, of a cave. Nay, not a cave. Uh, not even like a forest cave, uh, but it's an abandoned Sarlacc pit. Uh, Cobb doubts that it is actually abandoned. You know, there's no such thing as an abandoned Sarlacc pit. Um, with the there is if thing. you eat the Sarlacc, Matt. There you go. And I think, I mean, clearly, Pete, that meant to be be resonating with some theory, uh, some theory type things in a little bit. Uh, the dragon is teased to come out. Um, it ultimately surpasses the Bantha on a peg and goes after the running raider. Uh, the Mandalorian admits that the raiders might need some fresh ideas. So, Pete, <laughs> take us to pay, take us to the planning scene, even though it has scale issues. Hashtag not my Kenners. <laughs> yeah, the uh, model bone plan here. The little rocks are them, uh, but it is to scale. It seems too big to Vanth. He's only seen the head and the neck. Might be time to rethink this arrangement. More rocks get sprinkled. That's more like it. Where's he getting those reinforcements from, Mando? Well, Mando just volunteered his village. Uh, that is ultimately shared with the village folk back in uh, what I'm assuming was the one uh interior set built for the episode uh, uh yeah yeah i'll stick with that because i think that probably the the fight in the beginning was was by and large uh filmed in the volume but anyhow they're in they're having a town meeting in the bar as one does uh Cobb notes that mando wants the armor but the dragon might take uh more banthas more mining or mining or even the little ones in the school gasp gasp stakes the town is on board until it's mentioned that the Tuscan Raiders will work with them. Uh, Pete, we then get the ironic moment, the bartender looking monstrous to our human eyes. So he, a monster alien, says the Tuscan Raiders are monsters. Ah, the irony, Pete. They are not valuing each other for who they are on the inside, but rather judging them for the uh, color and uh, 
show of their skin, or in the case of the Tusken Raiders, the wraps that cover their skin. Rabble, rabble, indeed. But Mando has seen the size of the crate Dragon. It will swallow the entire town when the fancy hits it, he tells them. Uh, they're lucky indeed that Moss Pelgo is not already a sand field. Yes, the sand people are brutal. So is the Dune Sea. They've survived thousands of years and they know the dragon better than anyone. Um, they are raiders. This is true, but they'll keep their word. So they strike this deal here. If they're willing to leave the carcass and its ichor, this liquid, uh, God-like even in uh, reference, uh, and they will stand side by side and vow never to raise a blaster against the town until one of you in here breaks the peace. We then have a little bit of a passage of time, the town loading up bombs, seeing the line of raiders cresting the ridge, uh, some kind of uh, exotic sounding to our ears, exotic notes uh, given to us in the music here. Uh, the town folk are stunned. Uh, in the bomb loading process, a, a, a raider drops a bomb. Thank goodness it doesn't go off. That's about to flare up. There are differences. We have Cobb, Vanth stressing, it was an accident to just remind us anybody can make mistakes. Yes. And uh, what is noticeable the first time you're watching, but you don't understand what's on the Banthos, ultimately these giant crossbows that they're going to uh, use in the attack against the dragon here. Uh, but they hit the trail. The Banth is loaded up now with these explosive bombs or rockets. Pretty sure we've seen them uh, in Y-Wings before. Uh, they ride. There are sweeping vistas, Matt. The scale of this episode, what with the wide-open desert and the shots of the gigantic dragon cave and even the idea that inside this cave there once was a sarlacc that's been devoured by this crate dragon and then the crate dragon itself which we're about to disturb and fight i mean this is the most epic level of of tv we need to come up with another word here movie film tv we, we need to invent something here because it, it really is a hybrid in the truest sense of the word. It's not TV. It's Disney+. Plus. <laughs> um, the crew uh, heads to the dragon's lair. Once again, the opening is approached. There's a uh, long pause with the dragon sleeping. Pete, this time Cobb drinks from the stink bomb. Uh, we see uh, Tuscan Raider and Humanoid alike burying the bombs in the sand, preparing to bomb its soft stomach. Uh, indeed, the Mandalorian spells out this whole plan rather nicely in dialogue. Uh, ultimately, the dragon is woken up uh, by, by uh, Tuscan Raider calls, and it gives its howl, and this may be the most distinctive version of the uh the correct me if i'm wrong pete the revised ben kenobi monster call that was it was not always that howl that it is now on on the modern versions of a new hope right yes they they updated it in the 90s 
Uh, and ultimately, when it does come out, it's our clearest view yet. No question it is sand jaws with, um, you know, jaws in the shark uh, sense uh, with some kind of dragony horns there. Uh, however, Pete, it doesn't stay poked out long. Oh, no, look, it's going back into the cave. Yeah, um, I know there's already been controversy. People swearing up and down that George Lucas's crate dragons have legs and Disney's do not. Uh, guess what, chuckleheads? Um, the, the skeleton from the 1977 Star Wars uh does not show legs merely uh the the dragon snake-like form so no yet again your childhood has not been retroactively uh murdered uh the crate dragon here as it's trying to slide back it's being agitated by everybody who has not been a series lead either (laughs) on this show or on justified on fx uh, ultimately, it is properly angry, shoots acid out of its mouth. Pete, I think there was a behind-the-scenes discussion. Uh, how much person melting do we show? And probably somebody <laughs> from the Lucasfilm or Disney Plus end was like, how about not a whole lot of melting? How about not, you know, like, I think um, Brendan Fraser, The Mummy, where there's an acid and, ah, and there's melty and there's screaming. Like, how about just they just get melted down really fast, uh, you know, so it's not too uh, gruesome. Um, The Mandalorian fires the charge. uh, The blast flattens everyone, but it sends the dragon underground. Where could it be, Pete? Surely it still is on the ground, right? (laughs) It's not. Um, Indeed, it pops out of the top of the mountain, again shooting acid. Um, I, I'm wondering, Pete, maybe the acid was the most unexpected thing in the episode. Especially, I mean, the crate Dragon, very clearly, it's jaws in the sand. Like, that's even before you see it come up and eat the ban- eat, eat that first bantha. That's kind of clearly the, the film language there. But the, the acid shooting, that's... Pete, chef's kiss from the guy who has a chef's show, uh, or chef's kiss to the guy who has a chef show on Netflix done concurrently with this i speak of course of favreau pete with that it's time for the mandalorian and the cob to fly i want everybody listening to know how terrifying it is for matt to watch anything that's like a shark and now that we're giving sand sharks the ability to spit green acid that uh yeah we we tone it down on seeing it liquefy uh, it's victims. They, they pretty much like turn into dust. I, I think they handled it pretty well. Uh, so I can only imagine Matt's terror at the idea of having to fly into the gullet of this sand shark snake thing. Uh, indeed. There were moments of terror, but I think luckily, luckily it was through the, through the safe lens of, uh, of, sandy sci-fi western um we have mando and Cobb uh flying close to it trying to get its attention pete i was sure they were going to go for shoot it in the eye you know like that's because i feel like that's just what one does uh at least in on earth you know the bear the shark the whatever kind of get it in the eye uh here they're just trying to get its attention they fly fly down but it's behind them 
uh, Mando puts together, hey, there still is one more Bantha loaded up with bombs. Um, Cobb fires a rocket towards the crate Dragon to get his attention. Here it comes. The detonator is handed over. Um, we have Mando holding the spot, holding the Bantha in place as the dragon dives on top of them. And of course, Pete, all of this done after the Mandalorian has uh, has uh, bonked the faulty jetpack that uh, Cobb Vanth has, sending him flying away. Despite he, despite him wanting to stay, our uh, our, our justified Cobb Vanth flying away from the uh, the mortal action. I know there's been some consternation as well. Like, all right, you said you had one shot. You buried the bombs to blow up the belly. And now you have a Bantha loaded with bombs that goes in with you uh, to the inside of the Krayt Dragon. I, I get it, but, you know, you can let stories have backup plans. That That's okay. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, I, I would agree that they only have one attempt. I, I would agree that they can only plan on one attempt for it to come out, slither across the X marks the spot, and blow it up from there. They're not going to then say, oh, we messed up there. Let's have him slither out again after we bury more. You know, it is what it is. Um, but, but Pete, tell me, where is the Mandalorian? Is this a series finale? Has he been eaten? Because once you get swallowed down by a big giant creature on Tatooine, you never return. I mean, it's not really sold by the eyes of the child, by the onlookers. And then, of course, uh, the the creature reemerges. Mando, covered in slime. He's got the detonator. He blows it up, and it shakes the entire canyon. Again, the scale on this quote-unquote TV, the sliding stop out of Mando, having slayed the beast here. Uh, again, dripping with the acid, which apparently doesn't eat through Beskar. Thank goodness. Uh, and everybody, cheers. Yes, and with that, the butcher shop is open. <laughs> we get hero shots for both men. Uh, then we have harvesting time for the Tuscan Raiders. Real feel of, you know, kind of like the whaling vessel and, and, and you know, cleaning a whale uh, carcass. Uh, there's lots of bones with some meat on there. Pete, you put it in a stock and you got a great stew, baby. <laughs> if only uh, Grief Karga was around to deliver that line. There, there's there's hope uh, for maybe later in the season because Mando does have a, a sizable hunk on the back of his bike there. But the, the Tuscans, Matt, they wanted the carcass. They wanted the ichor. But I think they found something of even greater value. Yes, they find uh, they find a pearl. I know that you are more familiar with it uh, than I. I will compliment the show in saying uh, whether that is a deep cut that never gets returned to or whether it ends up being an important thing. It very clearly is a pearl, um, though it is kind of still a bit covered with blood and whatnot. Uh, it just reads as exactly as what they intend it to be. Yeah, this is a reference actually to the Knights of the Old Republic video game. This was a mission to kill a crate dragon and to harvest the pearl. So again, they are aware and now we're canonizing uh, that portion of the video game. Everybody's happy. Oh, and hey, by the way, here's uh, the, the Mandalorian 
armor of Boba Fett, Mando, and I didn't break that jetpack. It was already broken. Okay. And then as you noted on Twitter, Matt, as Mando and the child speed away, uh, mission completed for this episode, the aspect ratio of our not quite movie, not quite TV changes letterboxes here into the twin sunsets and from a rise somewhere further away we see a figure from behind he's got his tuscan raider sniper rifle he has his uh gaffy stick you know with the spear end and now established as the bantha toothbrush um placky scrubber thing on the other okay a bald head eyeing the mandalorian and then turns to us and matt it is tamora morrison it is a scarred boba fett you took my armor you just ran off rode off with my armor um till next time Let's chase down some theories. So, Pete, first one, probably the biggie here. Can we now assume that the uh, the 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 boot spur clankety clank uh, that came across uh, Fennec Shand, Ming Na Wen's character from last season, when last we were in um, uh, on Tatooine, that was widely assumed to be Boba Fett in his Boba Fett gear? Now that we've seen. Or I guess, A, can we presume that Boba Fett's gear was taken from the Sarlacc pit, hence his scarring? And B, can we also tentatively assume that it was not Boba Fett, but rather Cobb Vanth that came across the dead body, question mark, of Fennec Shand? So that in the previously on, we get Ming-Na Wen's Fennec Shand voicing, uh, you know, what had happened uh, on Tatooine. Um, did Boba come up to her body? Is she still alive? I think that's still very much in play. Was it Cobb Vanth? I think you have to lean with what we know of the passage of time now of it being Cobb Vanth. Did he find her, find her body? Did he bring her back? to justice or merely just, Hey, got this, uh, you know, brutal killer found dead in, in the wilderness. The, the spurs were the, were the big clue at that point, both Boba Fett and Cobb Banth by virtue of wearing the Boba Fett Mandalorian armor, uh, have that. So I, I think it's very much unanswered, at this point, you mentioned the Sarlacc pit, and I think there needs to be some clarification. So there's Sarlacc pits, and then there is the one in which Boba Fett was entombed, and that is the Great Pit of Carcoon. Um, so that is one particular Sarlacc pit. That doesn't mean that that wasn't the one that the crate dragon had gone into. And I think in some story sense, Boba Fett 
resourcefully found his way out of it. The scars may or may not have been from that encounter. We just don't know. Um, Boba Fett has been depicted in different media as having scars underneath his helmet anyway. We know that he is a clone, albeit with uh, slowed aging of Jango Fett, uh, who we still don't definitively know was a Mandalorian. Uh, we can assume, but again, just because you have the armor, okay, we've seen this with Cobb Vanth, that uh, you are not a Mandalorian. He did not uh, swear the creed, and one of the best moments of the episode is the taking off of the helmet and the reaction shot of uh, Mando in his armor. This guy's not a Mandalorian. He just took his helmet off in front of me. Um, so I think all this unanswered, and until we get it, it's really 601, half dozen of the other. I lean a little bit more towards Cobb Vanth. I also fiercely, passionately hope that Ming-Na Wen's Fennec Shand not dead. I think, too, the, the chronology in terms of uh, the beginning of Return of the Jedi with the Sarlacc Pit and all of that um, happening. And check my chronology here, Pete. But, sir, I mean, obviously it's happening within the same movie as uh, the destruction of the second Death Star. But within a couple of days, there's, you know, there's the beginning of the movie and the end. Um, I feel like that's the urgency presented. So if from there... If from Boba Fett in the Sarlacc pit, we then get to the destruction on the hollow TV of the, the uh, of the second Death Star, then Cobb Vanth wandering for a couple of days, then rescued, then gets the armor. You know, that's all within, by my math, five days, seven days, ten days, whatever it is. It's a very, very short period of time. And presumably well, remember, he's been... we're, we're told that, you know, the... the... The terrifying thing of the great pit of Carcoon is that there inside its belly, you'll be slowly digested over a thousand years. That's if you're not wearing Mandalorian armor, which just went inside in this episode, a crate dragon and emerged unscathed that it has this value. Now, yes, it emerges when we see it on Vanth worse for wear. It is either completely scuffed up or, sandy or both and the dent had been there previous um the real question is so boba fett got out of it we we know this definitively and it is now canonical to the screen how did he get out are we going to see that how did the jawas come into possession of his armor i think is the greater question at this point why would he ever give it up uh, you know, did he use it to get out and maybe it got scattered and they picked it up? Did he get out and he needed to uh, trade it for something, which I don't think he I mean, the the idea that he's tracking it at the end of the episode tells us no. And if you think that we're going to get Tim Morrison in one shot at the end of this episode, Matt, we've waited 37 years to get the character of Boba Fett in this chronology to return. The idea that we're just going to leave him on a ridge in Tatooine, knowing that his signature armor of value told repeatedly in this episode 
goes away with another Mandalorian. Uh, I know Filoni has has said controversially to some that Boba Fett's not a Mandalorian. Well, I, I think that's going to be settled in this season. Something would tell me that if Mandalorian, if Mandalorian, that if Filoni says that, he's probably right. I think he's pretty close to the writers. But again, could he be playing with it? But we're not done with Tamora Morrison at all. Do you take the shift in aspect ratio from widescreen TV, 16-9 aspect ratio, to a more cinematic, whether it's 2-1, uh, 2-3-9 to 1, whatever it is, do, do you take that shift to the cinematic to be, a, to be a visual kind of connection between the TV show and the movie, even though I, I don't think anybody questioned that they're all part of the same universe, but do you think that's what it was that, that John Favreau declared the return of Boba Fett will be on a movie a movie screen, even if it wasn't going to be on a movie projector in a theater, but the Boba Fett gets to return in a movie the way he returned, the way he left in a movie. Do, do you think that's the thought process there? Or is there something deeper? I'm. It's the, it's the visual version of, of underlining of, of bolding, if you will. Um, it also, Matt is, you know, the Patton Oswalt <laughs> uh, filibuster which I've seen repeatedly since uh, Boba Fett popped back up on the screen here 37 years uh, after the fact on very early Friday morning. Um, you had to make it special. And only a few, and maybe Josh Trank, ever know what would have been planned for that Boba Fett movie. But now you have the beginning of your Boba Fett movie on your Disney Plus, and everybody wins except Josh Trank. Thank goodness. Pete, is Cobb Vance's refusal to drink the stink bomb drink? Is he refusing because it actually is a Bantha chip, much as there are buffalo chips in the American frontier, which is the the dried out, uh, shall we say, waste? It's not. You you floated this here, pun intended. Uh, you you floated it off mic it is symmetrical it's some sort of urchin or cacti uh and there's the little cgi when they they break it it's something that retains uh water albeit filthy stinky water they are not drinking bantha feces that's just not george's wars uh pete do do the tuscan raiders travel single file to hide their numbers they do when there's six of them there. And I love that, again, we retain all of that. So the notion that, you know, Favreau, Filoni, you know, this is an episode written and directed by Favreau, but no doubt Filoni is, is right there, um, you know, is, is going to change up in some way things that George said and, and wrote that were always the case, like all of it's respectful and all of it is Star Wars. And if you have a problem with it, then just walk away from it is, is what it boils down to. Uh, they do all the things we've been told they do, except when they do things that we were never told or shown that they do. Um, so that they ride in single file, that the 
the banthas kind of sway back and forth and we don't see the feet because we don't need to when it's practical and then because we don't put giant masks on elephants and bring them out to the Tunisian <laughs> desert anymore is that is that why pete why Listen. won't they abuse animals for my star wars <laughs> i mean if they want to bring an elephant into the volume god bless you i just don't think you'd uh, that sounds like a terrible that sounds like a great way to get millions of dollars worth of damage and the ASPCA and bad on you and bad footage where you could just be like, uh, you know, shoot them from the, shoot them from the shoulders up and have them sway. You know, we'll build, we'll build a, a rig, just a rig that makes them sway, you know? Right. Now that, uh, you know, they've started the industry of, Oh, you want your own volume, Star Trek people and other productions that, you know, what do you know? Uh, a, subsidiary of disney is now once again at the forefront of tech uh but wise enough not to bring a gigantic beast of burden into uh this this digital stage uh how about matt the yellow droid graffiti on the unnamed uh gore koresh planet early on is this c-3po or are there other gold uh protocol droids in the galaxy that we're drawing graffiti of um i think that probably look the 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 effectiveness of the protocol droid for for what it was designed to do and indeed for tasks it was not designed to do i think that's probably well known however the foppish nature the dandy the dandified presentation uh software that that they come with probably irks some folks so I can understand how you might, Pete, you might have a protocol droid to work with you, but after you know eight to 10 hours of, of, of dealing with a protocol droid, you're probably kind of teed off at it. So I think there's probably angst in the galaxy about, about that particular model. One of the aliens glimpsed in the uh, combat uh, spectator area is... Uh, we've actually seen it before uh, in the cantini, cantina on Navarro. This, the dreaded Matt Constable Zuvio design. Uh, Constable Zuvio being a character that was marketed fairly heavily for The Force Awakens, uh, cut from a scene, uh, and action figures in all sorts of scales piled up. Do we finally have justice for Constable Zuvio? Uh, Pete, I just looked up Constable Zuvio on Wikipedia. Looks kind of familiar with the hat, but I would not have. I, I did not pick out Constable Zuvio or somebody of the uh, of the Cayuso Kai, Kai, species. Um, so you're in, in that regard. You're 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 picking that out better than i am uh is it justice for constable zuvio i will say sure absolutely it's dave <laughs> filoni who loves all the star wars children equally saying all right bud it's time to get some Cayuzos like constable zuvio out there um it, it is interesting to reflect though pete that this is so th so this is a character that has caused angst because he was highly anticipated and then not used the way people who hadn't seen the force awakens thought he should be used it was mean old 
J.J. Abrams and Kathleen Kennedy, who took their beloved Zuvios away after showing him in pre-release stuff. So uh, perhaps there's some irony there. I don't know. Let's just add that it's editorial sarcasm flourish that you're adding mean old in front of J.J. Abrams and Kathleen Kennedy because they are neither mean nor old. Best car value, Matt. Best car value continues to go up. You know, there's that guy on the hollow who's always yelling that I should buy, buy, buy best car. Um, And then we see its continued uh, value dodging, uh, deflecting blaster uh, fire and its crate dragon resistance. What can it do? It's clearly the flex seal of the Star Wars galaxy, right? Pete, you know, it's funny. Here we are, we're podcasting Star Wars today. We were podcasting Star Trek yesterday. And the commonality of some of the some of the backbiting from both fan bases is you know essentially there are all these rules that you're not following or that i think you're not following or things of that sort luckily i think star wars in particular um and the mandalorian in particular in particular is is somewhat freed up from that you know since this is not a story about the fate of the republic of the how, how we overcome the the empire things like that it's one man's journey to find more people like him in order to get this kid home. Uh, we're able to have stories that the stakes are great for us as we watch them because we care about these characters, but the particulars of you've changed this, you've changed that, that it's kind of less to play here in that the, the kind of galactic importance of this particular story is, is low. That we have Mando's armor and then Boba Fett's armor in this episode, I think underscores that value. This is not stuff that's easy to come across. Okay, Gore Koresh has gotten a bunch of it by either raiding Mandalorian coverts or now luring a Mandalorian out to do that. I'm interested to know, we've seen that the Imperials have dealt in Beskar. We've never seen it on any kind of armor that they have. Uh, and before I know what you're thinking, Matt, oh, we're going to say that the uh, the Force Awakens, Last Jedi, Gwendolyn Christie, um, Captain Phasma is wearing Beskar. That's never been established in the books. They say that it's actually um, leftover metal from one of the Emperor's uh, Naboo vessels. But it, it, it could turn into Beskar, uh, the way it also um, deflects phaser, phaser. Well, I'm, I'm now I'm mixing my peanut butter and my chocolate. <laughs> Blaster fire. Um, but- well, and, and I mean, at, at the end of the day, though, uh, again, as with many things Star Wars, let's look at the source material. I mean, Beskar, Beskar and its value, or Beskar's value, I guess that's the best way to put it, it's meant to be Nazi gold, right? So... There's as much Nazi gold around as the story, <clears throat> as the story requires. You know, I think now in 2020, most of it has been found and rounded up and you know returned from where it was stolen or you know, whatever that is. You're referring but if you to told me, Nazi gold, not Beskar, right? Like we're not finding Beskar. That's true. Like in our world, it 
to find the the search for Nazi gold is not something that in my mind is is actively done anymore. It's all been found or whatever. But if there was a news story tomorrow, hey, in some castle in you know some abandoned castle in the sub basement that people didn't know was there you know somewhere in europe they just found a crate of nazi gold i also would believe it and i would also believe you know i I believe there would be this discussion what do you do with it there's the inherent value of the gold there's the historical blah 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 all of that so i think if we rewind that as a topic to the 1950s 60s 70s i don't quite know what the whole search for nazi gold uh, timeline was but that's where we're at in star wars in terms of yes this thing people have heard of it's not very common but boy if if a crate of it if a crate of it appears or if a suit of it walks into your fight you know that 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 this is great fortune and it's worth fighting over not a crate dragon of it although (laughs) maybe there's that much of it out there i my mind goes to like, what else are they doing with it other than collecting it? Are they melting it down and making their own Mandalorian or similar type of suits with it? Uh, are they plating uh, weapons or uh, vehicles with it? You know, I know there had been discussion: is the Razor Crest, you know, shielded uh, with? Beskar as well. It's shiny. It kind of looks like him, and maybe it's just the, the hull plating. Um, yes, the the Nazi gold metaphor completely holds up. Um, but again, given that this episode is about Boba Fett's armor on a lawman on Tatooine, and now that is in the hands of our titular character and the most notable person to ever have that armor now knows he has it. That's the point of this episode. And I've seen people say, oh, you know, the first episode of season two of The Mandalorian, it doesn't feel as epic. Hello. It wasn't as good. Um, It was. And you reintroduced Boba Fett. So in the writer's room where Jon Favreau is with director Jon Favreau explaining to him, here's what's going to happen in this episode, everybody was on board. That much is certainly true. One one does get the sense that it's a small uh, writing room. I know that the entire season has three writers, and most of those are Jon Favreau. A couple of those are Dave Filoni, and one is Rick Famuyiwa. So... Certainly, it's easier It's easier to grab a writer to be able to better understand what they want out of an episode. Any other theories, Pete? The Razor Crest needed a once-over at the beginning of this episode. We've not yet left Tatooine. Uh, Matt may have seen a trailer where the Razor Crest's trunk is open, and it doesn't look like it's doing real good speed uh, in space. Uh, trouble ahead are we already hinting at the trouble the the pitch roids had pulled out a hose? Uh, are, are we going to, you know, ride up to whichever number docking bay this is in uh, Moss Eisley at the beginning of next episode, or is, is the razor crest good to go until it isn't? Um, well, I, you know, it depends what story master that droid moment was looking to serve. Was it completely character driven uh, in order to show that the Mandalorian is now better understanding of the, 
the creatures of the universe, including the uh, the mechanical ones, or was it set up for next time? I think that it is it is a compelling idea that next episode, um, if it doesn't pick up immediately after you know uh, this episode, it could be like Mando being chased back to uh, back to Mos Eisley. You know who's chasing him. It doesn't even necessarily matter. It could just be kind of the teaser act. You know, kind of James Bond mini adventure construction there. And as he gets back in there, he's looking to go. And shades of Empire Strikes Back. Wait, the repairs you asked for aren't ready. You know, it'll take a minute to hook everything back up, or you know, something like that, where maybe he's able to take off, but not in uh, not in great shape. I- I- indeed, in worse shape than when the ship landed. Uh, because the repair job, the once over, is incomplete. So that could be a way to kind of jump the story in terms of this this once mighty ship that, yes, in the uh, in the the jailbreak episode last season, it had leaking this and not great that. But to us, flies fast, flies good, gets the job done. This could be a way. This episode and the repair could be a way to cripple it for whatever the fate is in the near future. Are we done with Tim Oliphant's Cobb Vanth? No way, no how. Uh, particularly since the, you know, I hope to see you again someday. They pulled that exact same thing with Cara Dune last season. Um, th- there's there's no way. He's, he's too good. Um, I, I was going to say you don't get Timothy Oliphant for one episode. I mean, may, maybe you do if you're throwing around Disney Plus money. Um, but I think that it, it would be much better served for him to be in multiple episodes. You know, if we spent much of last season understanding how does this show work and what does it look like, how much is serial, how much is self-contained. If we use season one as a template, they introduce people in the first half of the season that they then go collect in the second half of the season for the big triumphant uh, finale. So I'm hopeful that we'll see him again in the second half of this season. Vance modified pod race engine sidecar vehicle. Is this Anakin's one of Anakin's uh, engines? Uh, it does have some differences. I, I mean, to me, it does not need to be. It's kind of like saying, you know, it's kind of like saying, oh man, I, I in my movie, in my TV show, uh, they had a NASCAR car. That clearly is the car from Days of Thunder that Tom Cruise drove. No, there's a bunch of cars like that that look like that and have shown up in other movies and so forth. So to me, it's a cute moment. We know that there was a time where pod racing was huge on Tatooine. Um, One senses from the, you know, kind of the, the original trilogy era that it is less so. But then, of course, you know, Luke lives in in the sticks of the sticks um so maybe it is still a big thing in in the larger areas but pete i just feel like it's a you know they went down to the junkyard and after the heyday of pod racing 30 years ago uh it's easy to just find one of these engines fix it up weld on a seat and a handlebar and there's your makeshift uh your makeshift speeder bike motorcycle thing the crate dragon now I mean, Matt, who would have figured nine movies, we only ever had a skeleton, and now we've seen one on a Disney Plus TV show? 
Well, I think in a certain sense, it speaks to it speaks to that design aesthetic that George Lucas brought where, you know, you know, we we forget that the first Star Wars movie was not particularly highly funded. Uh, then you factor in all this groundbreaking special effects stuff that was soaking up budget from the normal things of the day, you know, costumes and sets and things like that. So when they finally get to Europe to film uh, studio stuff in London or uh, outdoor stuff in Tunisia, there was not a ton of money left. You know, we forget that Luke Skywalker is w- walking around in a pair of bleached Levi jeans with the, the back pocket cut out. Um so, you know, things like that. So how do you spell out this big, giant alien world when you don't have these resources? Have somebody create that skeleton, and then the skeleton tells you, wow, there are big things. There are alien things. This one isn't here anymore. It shows time and creature. And meanwhile, you know, it's probably a plywood or foam just thing that probably is not made to specifically because they knew it was going to be a big piece and a long shot. And... There you go. You have all this hints, but you've hinted at a larger world, a larger story world, and then it's something that can be picked up on all these years later when the technology and resources and money allow for. So all of that is very George Lucas. We've got a Sarlacc pit. We've got a Great Dragon. We've got a the Boba Fett. The Great Pit of Carcoon or just some other Sarlacc pit. Um Sarlacc, it should be understood, and not saying this so much for Matt as listeners, are uh, creatures that inhabit these holes in the sand. So there is a gigantic creature underground, think like, uh, you know, underneath type of, uh, you know, Venus flytrap, that type of thing, but massive. You know, I resist the I resist the Star Wars impulse, and this is something baked in, I guess, by George. But it, it's it's baked into Star Wars, where all everything connects to everything else, and I kind of resist that. However, uh, we know that we know that uh, Jabba the Hutt was in the neighborhood of Mos Eisley. We know that Mos Eisley isn't that far from uh from where we're at in this episode not that far from from most pelgo so conceivably could it all be in the same neck of the woods and it's all that one famous sarlacc uh pit area i mean it it could be that also presupposes that there's only one of these creatures within x amount of distance Ultimately, Pete, I don't know that it needs to be one or the other until the story demands so. But what do you think? Well, the Great Pit of Carcoon was in the Dune Sea. But that's like saying there's only so many of those, uh, you know, um, tarantula-killing wasps that that goes into its burrow and kills a thing and then inhabits it. Um, That Boba Fett is there. He escaped it. What did he do to escape it? Does Beskar armor, um, does the jetpack somehow, you know, help you not fly out of a jam, but, you know, could you do something to kill an animal you're stuck inside to be slowly digested over a thousand years? Are we going to get these flashbacks, you know, that we got from Vanth 
the story of what happened post Jedi, post Death Star, you, you know, the second Death Star, not that first one. You know, you mentioned Death Star, your brain goes to the first one. I love that they did that as an affectation. Uh, but, you know, are, are we going to have Boba Fett sit down and tell Mando that story as he's riding on his modified Slave One speeder? Pete, I'm going to go big or go home here. I think not only are we going to get the flashback, but, you know, you mention, you mention post-Return of the Jedi. I think we also need to see this through the lens, no joke, of of that Patton Oswalt uh, improvised uh, riff there, talking about the claw coming up and whatnot, and, and how that really is a fan desire. So I think I think we're going to get um, I think we're going to get an episode where we have that flashback, where maybe it is as immediately after the beginning of Return of the Jedi as possible. Like, you know, let me tell you the story, and then off screen you hear boom, and cut to. Jabba's sail barge having just exploded, our heroes from Return of the Jedi having just left, and you really could have that, you know, some signs of some sort of struggle, grunts, and then he claws his way out, and he's blasting and this and that, the other. Um, some sort of damage there where, uh, you, you know, whatever it might be to quickly separate him from the armor. Um, I hope that you get that. I hope that you get that in the widescreen aspect ratio. And Pete, I hope for one thing more. Okay, the first season showed John Favreau's uh, rather unique interest in using comedic actors in the show, not necessarily playing haha funny roles. Um, we have we add to that list John Leguizamo in this episode. Uh, the wide assumption being that he is. Uh, voicing uh core garage at the beginning um john leguizamo not exclusively a comedic actor but i think i think known for some lighter stuff pete what if in the boba fett episode even if the boba fett flashback episode what if if only as a voiceover do we get Patton oswalt to fully complete the circle that he has played a small but important cultural role in bringing back boba fett this way now i'm salivating Okay, the idea that, you know, maybe he's uh, we, we've seen Lures Cantina in uh, The Mandalorian. We've seen that the job of bartender went from Lure, a human, to a droid. Maybe, just maybe, Patton Oswalt, you know, is pinch hitting as bartender and he tells the story. Like, can we please make that happen? Or, or it could be as grand as that, or it could just be at, you know, the cantina, a cantina, whatever it is, have him as a prominent extra, just sitting there, no makeup, no whatever, just put him in a whole Star Wars, whatever, just have him sitting there drinking, drinking the blue drink and whatnot, and kind of, you know, argh. it would just be, it would be perfect. It would. What are Silicax crystals, Matt, and apparently good enough to get you uh, a thing of water and Boba Fett Mandalorian armor, or are they basically like, uh, you know, mood crystals? Pete Silcax crystals are uh, related to the uh, to the MacGuffin economy in Star Wars, where <laughs> things have value because the characters say they do, um, and and rarely does anybody have a job that's uh, that's that's 
as as normal as mining you know if you're going to go into the mining guild you also need to be prepared to gun down civilians and whatnot so i would even add to that pete i mean obviously i'm giving somewhat of a jokey answer it could be that Silicax crystals have no value to Cobb Vanth or to anybody in the settlement, um, just as, frankly, the egg uh, in the first season of Mandalorian. You, you know, I don't know that anybody anybody who wasn't a Jawa wouldn't go in search of the, the Mudhorn egg in order to drink from the egg and that's it. But they assigned value to it, therefore it had value. So, obviously, in the story function here, it's only valuable because... We want to figure out a way that a guy with nothing can get the most famous, you know, armor from uh, from Star Wars prior to the Mandalorian show. So, yeah, it's 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 super valuable and valuable enough because I guess the Jawas don't appreciate the the value of Beskar, or if they do, a Camtono of Silicax crystals is worth more. So there you go. Well, they wanted first they wanted uh, Mando's armor in exchange for the pieces of the razor crest that they had looted on Arvala seven and then defaulted to the egg. Uh, and to your entire response there, Matt, I say, suka, suka, suka. Any other theories there, Pete? How did these Jawas get the Boba Fett Mandalorian armor? I need you to commit yourself. So, Pete, though obviously the Sandcrawler and its inhabitants were uh, were visited by uh, the Empire at the beginning of A New Hope, I think in our hearts the Sandcrawler that rescues Cobb Vanth is the same one, and other Jawas have fixed it up, and away we go. That said, just because it's in our hearts, it's not necessarily true. We've seen uh, from the first season of Mandalorian how there's many, uh, you know, many Jawas with many Sandcrawlers out there. So here's what i'm thinking i'm thinking that as as um as thieving as the jawas can be a a barely functioning boba fett probably wouldn't give up that armor or you know be knocked out and then they take it that kind of thing i think that probably it's a case i could see him uh making his way out of the sarlacc pit and you know uh clothes and skin burning uh, through the through the the you know the spaces that the that the armor has and him stripping all that off in order to get the acid away from him that kind of thing um and then maybe somehow separated from it uh or then maybe there's a clunk on the head from from the jawas that again always seem ready to 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 pounce i i, I think of the end of uh first season of mandalorian you know uh uh the moths ship barely down before before it was being harvested so I think you're just going to see the the convenient but in-universe answer that the Jawas seem always ready to go, and the minute that Boba Fett was not able to keep them away, you know, whether he took off the armor or they stole it or whatever, I think you're... I really, really do expect that you're going to see... You're going to see the quote-unquote the deleted scene from Return of the Jedi where he gets out uh, the thing that people were hoping for in the special edition, and then in subsequent uh, edits of the special edition i really think you're going to see that and you're going to see in a couple of minutes you're going to see the boba fett movie to get us to this point now we all know that had the commercial internet existed in 1983 
that people would have gone on it and immediately spoiled that Boba Fett uh, dies a meaningless death, that he was completely misused and wasted, and that George Lucas had ruined their childhoods during their childhoods. I think the he, other... he was the constable Vizio of his day. <laughs> uh, he he was. Um, I think that it's a real question. So Boba Fett has a Tuscan Raider rifle. He has a gaffy stick. Um, he has what appears to be darker Tuscan Raider robes on uh, than the ones we see in this episode. Although it's not inconceivable, um, you know, he was one of them hiding in plain sight with a helmet on and Mando rode off. And now I'm going to distance myself from these Tuscan Raiders who are going after crate dragon meat and looking for a pearl. And I'm going to watch him ride off with my helmet off. Um, is it possible he was among that group and secondary question, if not, could he willingly have gotten away, given up the armor so that he could now be incognito? I guess the second question I'm asking is, did he get tired of being Boba Fett? I think that if they are setting up the reveal that there was a special Tuscan Raider who was not of the Raider species, but actually was Boba Fett in disguise. I think there would have been some sort of evidence in this episode, you know, the lingering, um, the lingering shot of Tuscan Raider looking at the two of them or, Hey, that's the Tuscan Raider with the red necklace or just something where you sit and go, uh, you know, hey, there. this one sticks out in my mind. And then you can say previously on, and then you can do the grand reveal. So I'm going to say no on that end. Uh, I do rather like the idea that Boba Fett, the most famous bounty hunter in the galaxy of his time, who also can, he now can say in a future episode, you know, the ignominy of of how poorly I went out and, and Jabba's palace and all this, uh, you know, Jabba, Jabba's sail barge and all this stuff. Um, it was just time to stop being Boba Fett. I feel like there's your story solution because he can be angry at the beginning of Return of the Jedi by way of the fact that he <laughs> appeared to die. And then it was like, you know what? Enough's enough. If I Now that I've been wounded once, they're just going to keep coming. They're just going to keep coming. It's time to just let it go. So, so heck, Pete, I might, uh, I'm not going to revise my answer. I'm going to give another version of, of my Boba Fett scene Maybe he willingly sold it to the Jawas to start a new life, to be seed money for a new life. I think it begs a question then, why is he chasing it and or Din Djarin or the Mandalorian? Um, and, you know, so let's say he tracked this group of Tuscans who had Cobb Vanth wearing the armor. He's just watched the Crate Dragon escapade granted they made enough noise to attract him over there dune sea being a, a gigantic area yet you know small enough at the same time and and now he's doing it i just can we get these answers right away um if i'm john favreau you don't get those answers next week uh because it's too good a it's too good a mystery um so i would bet 
I would bet in the neighborhood of two, two oh five, the fifth episode of the season. That's when I would say we're going to start to have some of this stuff pay off. Chapter fourteen, the Boba Fett. Indeed, there you go. The return of Boba Fett. There could be your episode title. And of course, keeping us coming back week after week is the people who support us on Patreon.com slash Fantastic Geek. Though we might be swallowed up by a great pit of carcoon, we know that we can always get out by the people who pitch in on Patreon.com slash Fantastic Geek. We don't have Beskar suits. We don't have Beskar laptops or microphones. But you know what? It feels that way with the contributions that are made by our patrons. We continue to be so proud that we are listener supported, uh, especially this time of year as some of those uh, annual bills do come in. So thank you again for everybody who does go to patreon.com slash fantastic geek for making sure that this whole operation stays in the sky. All right, let's extend that antenna. Pete, we ran our poll on Twitter. The choices were one Camtono. No! Got 0%. Two Camtonos, Pigman Fight, got 3%. Three Camtonos, The Way, got uh, 31%. And four Camtonos, Epic Launch, got 65.7%. So, a uh, great outing there. Some replies on Twitter. Uh, LMD Mary, that's at Geek Kirk. I literally screamed when the marshal was a marshal I already knew well. But I mean, he's the master of the Western gunslinger stance. Heart eye emoji times three, Pete. Uh, we also heard from Andre Yeager. That's at Dr. Polo in 1983. Pete, he himself a gunslinger. Uh, always quick on the draw. He Andre says, Nobody's how much... faster than Andre. I'm sorry. <laughs> there you go. Uh, he says, I forgot how much I missed this show. They jumped right back in and didn't miss a beat. Favreau is a real fan of the Star Wars universe. Almost everything in the show is a callback to the original movies. Great start to the season. We heard from Hydra Lives. That's at Hydra underscore Lives. Lots of action. Dragon Pearl. Anakin's pod racer engine. And that cameo at the end. Uh, then we heard from JC, hashtag BidenHarris2020, wear a mask. That's at JC the Mythic. Putting the way as option two makes choosing that much more difficult. Pete, I didn't say the polls were going to be easy. I just put them up there. <laughs> you shot first. Pete, what do you have on your end? So we have a review left to the Mandalorian podcast by Fantastic Geek Apple podcast feed uh the headline is humor plus facts equals a great podcast five stars this was left by q poyo i can't quite pronounce that <laughs> it's q p o i o u y uh so yeah Help me with that pronunciation. And it reads, love Fantastic Geek perspective on both Mandalorian and Picard. Referring, of course, to our uh, Star Trek Picard podcast. Uh, typically, I'll watch an episode of either, then settle in for a listen with them. I highly recommend if you are, were, or tried to be a writer, as story and production are central to their commentary. 
Well, certainly thank you for those words. And yeah, I think if there's one takeaway from the perspective we bring, it's to always be looking at uh, not just why, you know, why does the story do things for story reasons, but why are some things done for real world reasons? Like, uh, hey, Pedro Pascal, he's awesome, but he's doing a play on Broadway during the first season of Mandalorian. Uh, how about we keep the mask on a whole bunch of time and get great stunt guys? You know, things like that 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 then impact the story. Absolutely. To Facebook, Matt, to the Fantastic Geek Facebook page, where Steve Adams writes in, Episode 201 was great. This was a perfect way to get us back into the world built for us in this story. Obviously, there were some great reminders of the Mudhorn from last season, and this show excels at reminding us what a dangerous place this universe really is. I look forward to the rest of the season and to finding out who the stranger at the end of the episode uh, was. Could it really be Boba Fett? I'm not sure how I feel about it. Uh, about that. I was hoping to get another cameo from Ming-Na Wen, as I am not convinced her character is really dead, but there is still time for that. Looking forward to your insight, as always, now to wait for episode two. What an interesting idea that uh, th that they might have Tamora Morrison back. I guess what? If he's not Boba Fett, he would be a clone, right? Which, <laughs> again, I'm of two... of them. <laughs> right, right. And, and again, I'm of two minds. Like, there's within the story, and then there's the production end. For many of us, for most of us, that would be a cool fake out and, and whatnot. But then, how, you know, how many of the new fans that are watching... Are going to be completely would be confused by the idea that this isn't the guy who played Boba Fett's dad in the movies that you saw, and because Boba Fett was a clone, so now it's the same actor. Sci-fi got it. Now you're going to lump on. Well, hey, there were all these Clone Wars uh, cartoons, and there was this and that, the other, and there's Rex, and the, like, th at what point does this become too top heavy? If this was the first season, I'd say no way, no how, because that first season. Obviously loved Star Wars, but kept kept a lot of those um, kind of deep cut canon issues, kind of kept them at the periphery or kept it like, if you understood that this was the cantina, you were like, this is amazing. It's the cantina. It continues my understanding of the cantina. If you didn't, then you'd be like, that's a space bar. Hey, there's uh, Mr. Toro who wants to hire him for a thing. That's cool. Let's go find, let, let's go on the job. You know, I, I don't know how much extraneous stuff they're going to pour into this this of course with a season with tomorrow morrison with ahsoka with um the uh mandalorian character uh the female mandalorian character help me out pete what's her name played by katie sackoff bo katan so again i understand where we're headed but i could be completely wrong there pete any other feedback that you have not on this end well, Pete, wielding a dark saber is our friendly Grand Moff from the Netherlands. I introduce to you via audio recording, perhaps even hollow recording for those devices uh, who ha which have it enabled, Grand Moff Fred from the Netherlands. Hello, Matt and Pete and all listeners to Fantastic Geek. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for The Mandalorian Season 2, Episode 1. Wow, 
So good to be back in this series and in this podcast. I really enjoyed this episode a lot. High, high quality, very nice cinematography, nice music and really on movie level, I would say. Actually, I'm more a Star Trek fan than a Star Wars fan, but I have a lot of trouble to say that I like Discovery better than this. This is really very nice. And I earned my Star Trek rank by giving feedback for Star Trek Picard, for Star Trek Lower Decks and for Star Trek Discovery. I don't know if you have a rank available for me in the Star Wars universe. Although the hashtag Grand Moff Fred already circulates on the internet. Initiated by nobody else than you. Very nice that we see here that the Mandalorian knows his ways with the Sand People. And we learn some extra stuff about their background and their way of life. Two opposing groups joining together to fight a big other bad is of course a little bit a trope. I'm very happy that you don't record your podcast immediately after the episode has aired because otherwise I couldn't give feedback in time and especially because of simultaneously being aired Discovery, His Dark Materials, Next and I do a podcast about Stargate SG-1. A little nitpick is when the crate dragon is coming to Mos Pelgos that these windmills are going to turn. He is subterranean moving and why is there suddenly more wind? Even if we see one of these transport animals we don't even see his hairs move by wind. So these windmills turning is ominous but not, not in any way explainable. Or it's the other way around, it are not windmills, but just signal posts for subterranean movement. But then it's a little illogical that the blades of that thing are positioned as they are. They really have a position like they have to catch wind. And one other nitpick is when the Mandalorian is arriving in Mos Pelgo, he leaves the child on his speeder bike. And when you see the people of that village, they are not all looking equally trustworthy. And one last thing, I had expected that the powers of the child would have been needed in some way to defeat the great dragon. Furthermore, very nice episode. That was all for now. Greetings, all the best. Fred from the Netherlands. Well, Matt, uh, Moff Gideon takes his marching orders from Grand Moff Fred, and that's all that needs to be said about that. (laughs) As for the windmills moving, I think all the evidence that Fred presented is 100% correct, that it's not shown consistently. I think it's evidence that Jon Favreau thought up a cool visual or or remembered a cool visual from another movie whatever it is but kind of like there's a storm coming oh no it's the tornado it's the bad guy it's all of that i think that that explains the windmill it kind of was a cool visual aesthetic not not something tied to the action of the moment yeah um and okay so the hairs on the bantha don't move but this subterranean under the sand monster makes the the windmill go i i think it it strangely works um and and i think it sells that ominousness that fred was referring to 
the child in the in the uh, pouch on the speeder bike, and then he's out of it, and then he's in the the pot. I mean, we've seen that it can take care of itself and others when it needs to. The mud horn, the incinerator trooper with the flamethrower. So you know the the fear for him, though he's been taken from Queel by biker scouts, though he is sought after by Moff Gideon. Um, you know, we know when to rightly fear for him and when not. And I'll add to that. I think that the, the uh, requirements of the story, uh, now that we have a Mandalorian and the child pairing, this is not a story that requires the child's presence, but he's not going to leave him behind anymore. So uh, yes, it is true that the child is put in the backseat of the speeder and also figuratively he's in the backseat of the story because the child's uh, input powers, uh, danger, etc., are simply not needed in this narrative. So Pete, how can people try and work their way up in the uh, in hashtag Fred's army uh, to, to perhaps one day uh, get a, a regional governorship or perhaps a moth? <laughs> uh the 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 moth designation how can people be in touch with you to talk about the mandalorian you can find me on twitter at peter p-i-e-t-e-r-j-k-e-t-e-l-a-a-r 11,674 followers can't be wrong and while i'm personally on twitter is looking back lost do be in touch with the podcast comment on fantasticgeek.com check us out on twitter instagram gmail where we are fantastic geek as well but wait there's more facebook.com slash fantastic geek with the ph all one word like it today for those listening on the pop culture podcast feed we will be back next saturday november 7th uh to talk discovery episode 304 if you're here for just the mandalorian listening to the mandalorian feed we'll be back uh, next Sunday or Monday, Mandalorian Monday, somewhere in there, uh, to talk Chapter 10 of the show. That's also called Episode 202 for those keeping track in the traditional TV sense. For now, though, Pete, I shall say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. I guess every once in a while, both suns shine on a womp rat's tail. <laughs> <laughs>